Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Innovation Forum is a purpose-driven company that brings together business executives with civil society groups, governments, and academics to find solutions to difficult supply chain challenges. Its next forum is on the 4th and 5th of April, the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum, which explores how business can transform practices to drive ethical, responsible and transparent supply chains and create positive impact. Find out more at innovationforum.co.uk. I'm very pleased today to welcome Mark Campanale back to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Mark is the founder of the Carbon Tracker Initiative, a non-profit think tank launched to pinpoint with clarity how global capital markets have failed to deal with climate risk. Mark developed the unburnable carbon capital markets thesis, the idea that there are substantial fossil fuel energy sources which cannot be burnt if the world is to adhere to the necessary carbon budgets to limit global warming. More recently, Mark co-founded Planet Tracker, which focuses on agriculture, seafood, forestry, water and textiles. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining me today once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Delighted to join you. Uh, very much looking forward to talking to you. Some time has passed since we last spoke. We're coming out of, uh, well, uh, COP26 and, and uh, hopefully some other uh, uh, crises uh, associated with COVID and so forth. So I maybe get a sense of where you see things uh, and, and get a sense of the lay of the land. But maybe just before we start, uh, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so my background, I spent 20 years in fund management, uh, looking after pension schemes, including the, at one point, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace's pension scheme. Um, and this was all, you know, around what you would call sustainable investing, but for large um, institutional investors out in the, yeah, the city of London. So um, but about 10 years ago, myself and a colleague who used to work with me uh, decided to look at some climate questions that we were very concerned about, how Wall Street, the city of London, was misunderstanding climate risk and in particular the, their exposure to the funding of fossil fuels. And we set up a, a, a think tank. Um, well, actually, we, we decided to write a, a report to answer a question that we had. And the, having launched this report, the consequences of it was to um, to actually launch a think tank. And that's where we are now. So 10 years on, uh, the Carbon Tracker Initiative, we have maybe 30, 35 staff between London and New York. Um, and we analyze the clean energy transition. We analyze the financing of fossil fuels. And our goal or our mission, our philanthropic purpose, is to try and align the world's financial markets with the best climate science, which means making changes that keep us to within no more than 1.5 degrees of warming. So that's, that's us as an organization. And, and my role is I'm the exec chair. 
Excellent, excellent. And we'll talk about that in a moment and this question of stranded assets and, and, and get a sense of, uh, yeah, just a, a brief overview of why that's important, where, where, where we are with, with that um, mm. in terms of awareness and, and the risks. But um, I'd just like to start and get a sense of, uh, as I said, we're coming out of uh, uh, COP26. There's been a lot of energy, a lot of um, certainly rhetoric um, and, 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 and some momentum too around, around uh, dealing with, with climate issues. Um, COVID is still a, a with us. And I'm just wondering what in particular worries you the most at this particular moment, Mark? Um, it's a very simple one, which, is, which I'm afraid to say is the same one um, that worried me 10 years ago, which is this financial system, the banks, the insurers, the pension funds, the bond markets, um, are funding a huge expansion in fossil fuel production. That's going to take us way, way beyond two degrees, heading to beyond three degrees. If you just look at what the funding is committed to, and there's a report that's come out in today's Financial Times that just just highlights the, the billions going into, um, particularly into oil and gas production. And, and, I, I, and my concern there is, is that um, it creates an expectation that what's been funded uh, is going to get delivered. And... And if not, then you're going to have this, you know, this concern about what we call stranded assets. So you create an expectation that all these fossil fuels will be developed and will be burnt. Um, and um, for all the commitments and all of the regulatory uh, announcements, um, the basic maths remains seems to remain the same, which which is that we're funding the pension scheme system and the banking system is funding is funding our way into climate chaos and and uh, there's obviously lots of optimism. There's some good news stories along the way, which we can talk about. But the basic thing, the basic concern that I have essentially remains the same. Um, and the post-COVID uh, recovery, uh, I mean, just last week, the announcement was that the world had, um, from the bottom of COVID's economic decline to where we are now, that the, the use of coal had increased last year by 9%. 9%. Globally, that's an astonishing leap, terribly concerning. But as I said, there's lots of good news um, which we can talk about uh, in our conversation. But that's that's the main part. Yes, yes, and 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 there are at least two dimensions to this, Mark, aren't there? The one is the actual the money that's funding that mm. this growth in infrastructure, in in uh, fossil fuel resources, in 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 uh, exploration, in in uh, building fossil uh, you know coal fired stations and so forth, which is clearly hugely problematic. Uh, but there's also this other dimension which you which you you touched on there, which is this question of stranded assets. So why should we be particularly concerned about that? Financial markets are uh, well, uh, they're touted at least as being highly flexible, responsive. You know, uh, things change, yeah. markets go up and down. But what's really yeah. at stake here, in your view, with respect to this, this question of stranded assets? And maybe just if you can explain what stranded assets well, are first. Well, there's two parts to it, but the first is a fairly obvious one, which is you create infrastructure, coal-fired power stations, railroads that carry roll to ports, ports that take that take the coal out and shipping that transports the coal, uh, and you expect that to have a 30-, 40-year economic life, and the same with things like gas pipelines and oil pipelines, and, and, and that actually the demands that we have to, I mean, we're going to have to cut emissions by 50% in the next decade, 50% cut and that means there's a lot of this fossil fuel infrastructure that's still being built today uh that we're gonna to have to retire early now the, 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 the main concern there 
is 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 um, that, that it will never ever get an economic return on capital, and it's it's a misuse of the, of the banking system's scarce capital resources. We could be deploying that capital far more productive uses, especially now that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels in most, if not all, parts of the world. You know, this is the strange thing that even though renewables are cheaper to build the new build coal, oil and gas, we're, we're still building uh, coal-fired power and still building gas. And so, you know, the humanity is, does do some curious things. And well, there's the second angle to it is, is um, you turn over uh, uh, infrastructure, um, you know, we'll have a 10, 20, every sort of 20, 30 years once you've built something. Um, and um, what, what, once you've built it, there's often a great tendency to sort of want to, want to hang on to it um, to see a, a purposeful use of it. And, and what you're doing is you're re-embedding a high-carbon system where we should actually be replacing. And so stranded assets is, is, is really what investors are concerned about, where you don't get the economic return that you anticipate. Bankers don't get their money back. Shareholders never get the dividends they thought. And then you've got a whole lot of redundant assets that you then have to dismantle and dispose of. So that's really the basis of yeah, what we yeah. call stranded assets. In, in finance, uh, uh, finance professors around the world and business schools yeah. and indeed in the financial press and the, 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 the Financial Times and, and, and uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, financial markets are predicated on uh, to be rational. Uh, if a company's profits are falling, its share price will fall and these kinds of things. Yet, you know, this is some time since you've written this report. It's out in the open. People know what these risks are. And yet things seem to be, the party seems to be merrily continuing. What, what's your understanding of that? Investors are bottom line focused. They must see that these are increased risks. And yet, as you say, vast sums of money continue pretty much unabated into investments into this fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah, gosh, there's so many reasons to this. I mean, we, this is sort of your classic cognitive dissonance. Why do people care and do things they know don't work or won't work or cause will cause uh, very bad outcomes for humanity? And 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 some of this comes down to, um, I mean, it's the same question. Why why when why do people stick with the same bank and never move their bank account? Or why do the people stick stick with the same electricity supply and never move it to a cheaper one? It's the same question. People get gets used to what they're familiar with. In the case of the banks, yeah. we're talking about relationships with the oil companies and the gas companies that, and even the mining companies that could go back 50 years or 100 years. And you're asking a bank to, to not just to change the basis of the relationship they've had with typically you know, a vast corporate giant in the oil sector. You're asking them not just to change it, but to end it. Um, so you've got existing relationships You've got things you're familiar with. You've got tried and tested ways of doing things in the past. And the good old-fashioned people don't like change. You talked about the, the growth in renewables um, yeah. and the, the cost, the fall and cost in renewables. What are the financial returns from, from fossil fuel investments compared to renewables? Irrational behavior and so forth can, at a, you know, at a group level, but at an individual level, if you're still getting a project you know, and you're getting good fees, presumably, in fact, you know, as as this sector seems to become riskier, presumably they can charge more money. And, and they do. And, and this question of the cost of capital for offshore oil and gas production, the cost of capital, so how much does it cost for a company to go to a bank and borrow to raise it, has gone up 
and the cost of capital for um, renewables has gone down. So, so even with these headwinds of a higher cost of capital, the companies can borrow money, and they've also been going to the bond market. So you don't go to the bank; you you issue paper to yes. to bond investors, uh, which is another form of a loan. Um, and the bond investors charge, particularly in the case of share oil, um, charge a high coupon, which or interest rate, and and the companies seem to be prepared to pay it in the hope that oil prices will stay high long enough for them to be able to pay their debt. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. In the last few years, very large numbers of oil and gas producers, particularly in the fracking companies in America, have gone bust because they've not been able to pay back their debt. Um, and if you look at the dividends to the, the, the oil majors have been paying because they've continued to pay dividends, where, where have that, where's that money come from? Has it come from their profits? Well, no, it hasn't. What they've been doing is they've been borrowing money from the banks to pay their dividends. And normally... In a usual business, what happens is you make a profit and then you decide to pay a dividend. But what's been happening in the, the, you know, the last, increasing the last decade is that the oil companies have been borrowing more money from the banks to fund the dividends and, and share buybacks. And, and that's not great behavior. And they're doing it in the hope that oil prices come back. So let's look what happened in last year uh, and the year before last. As you, you remember that we had negative oil prices and oil prices dropped to $20, $30 a barrel. Now, um, what that meant is that if your costs of production as, as an oil company were, say, $35 a barrel break even, um, but the market price was, say, $20 a barrel, then obviously you're generating a negative return. That's what was happening. And the share prices dropped as people realized this was happening, and the, the companies then cut back on, on capital expenditure. Um, but the nature of the returns to the sector are very different to renewables. So, so, so say, for example, if you can find and produce your, your oil at $20 a barrel and the market price is, say, $80 a barrel, as it's, it's gone up that far recently, then the difference between your $20 cost of production and your $80 sale price is huge. And so the return to the equity shareholders has been massive. And as those oil prices have recovered, the companies have, have been printing money, you know, comes like BP and Shell, which is why in the UK, the government's been thinking about a special windfall tax on them as, uh, during the energy crisis. Uh, but when oil prices were down at 20 and their production costs were high, they were not generating that kind of cash. So the opportunity to make money in the sector, it's very volatile, but the, the opportunity to make money like that is there. And obviously that's its appeal, and, and particularly recently as, as share prices have recovered. The nature of returns to oil and gas are very different from to the nature of returns to renewables. So in the case of renewables, the, the cost of the actual the equipment has been dropping. So the cost of solar equipment and wind equipment has been dropping by 70, 80% over the last decade. Cost of, of battery storage has been dropping, uh, been dropping not quite at the same rate, but it will do uh, because they're on technology learning curves where every doubling of production, you get a like 10, 20% cost in. Uh, the cost of the technology, which has been happening. Uh, so the people who manufacture the equipment are, are on th thin margins. So the people who then deploy the equipment uh, where they're producing the energy at these low costs, they can then have long-term what are called power purchase agreements where they get they can sell their, their, their energy at a price maybe with an inflation adjusted to it over, say, 20 years. And it looks like a long-term annuity. It looks like a long-term yield. You've got a lot of these renewable energy infrastructure players uh, building out vast amounts of wind and solar on, on 10, 15, 20-year contracts where you're getting a steady 5 or 6% per annum. Now, 
five or six percent per annum looks like the kind of thing pension funds want, which is why so many pension funds have gone into renewable energy. It's a long-term, steady cash flow. Uh, the chances of um, uh, of damage to the technology, which is proven, are, are relatively low, so long as you maintain it. Whereas in oil and gas, it's it's much more much more speculative. If you can find it at twenty dollars a barrel and sell it at eighty, the returns are fabulous. Just so long as as prices stay high. So let's actually look at what's going to disrupt this formula. Now, uh, fossil fuel production, if you think about it, it's inherently inflationary. All the cheap stuff has been found, largely. You're going to have to go out to more extreme places, ultra deep water, the Arctic, to find it. And then you've got to get all your equipment out. You then got to, to drill it out, get the, get the stuff back to shore to refine it. All of that is, is becoming more and more costly to produce. Um, whereas, whereas renewable where you can produce at the point of use um, is inherently deflationary. It's just getting cheaper and cheaper. So as more and more people switch to renewables, which is what's been been happening, you're beginning to see market share uh, chipped away by by renewables. And just last year, um, in fact, the, the results came out just a week ago that in the United Kingdom, electric vehicle sales reached around 20% of new vehicle, vehicle sales. Now that's up from about three, two to 3% in 2018. So within four years, electric vehicles have gone from 2% of sales to 20% of sales. Within another four years, could it be 40%? Could it be 60%? Now, if you do that in all the major OECD countries and then add in China, which is a very strong user of electric vehicles, uh, then you can see there will be a lot of demand destruction uh, in yeah. oil and gas. Yeah. And, and the consequences of that will be falling prices. So, so with falling prices, you've got the chance for returns to be squeezed. And then the returns that investors will get from traditional gas will begin to deteriorate as, yeah. as, new, technologies, very, very as new technologies come in. So, so yeah. we're, we're, we're right on the, in the middle of this extraordinary clean energy transition that's happening yeah, it's it's very interesting you say that. I was just had a quick look at is it Michael Liebrich's uh, oh yeah uh, the genius of this yes, sector that yes. I take my hat off to him. Yes, well, I mean there was a quote which in in his uh, one of his social media uh, accounts, I think, which he, and it says something like, "He said twenty years of growth and three trillion dollars of investment, and and wind and solar still produce only seven percent of world's power and meet only three percent of final energy needs." What that's not hugely impressive, is it? When we're looking at targets over the next, you know, eight years to twenty thirty, you know, what's going to change that? Well, the clear thing is is the economics has changed in the last ten years, with even more conviction that actually the renewable energy technologies will win right across the board from energy storage, power generation, transportation. It's, it's clearly there. It's just a matter of scaling and time. Can we scale it uh, as, quickly as, uh, as quickly as we need to? And, and there, we're not so sure. And, and Michael's, Liebreich's observations are, are, are fair. Can we, can we cut emissions by 50% in 10 years? Can we scale um, clean energy globally as quickly as we can? Now, um, I happen to think that it's, it's doable. I think we can do it, but we need to think of an economy that's almost like on a on a on a war footing, where we're you know, do you remember during the Second World War, uh, whole factories were turned over from producing cars to producing mm-hmm. tanks, and uh, ditto the same with uh, with aircraft. And and should we th- be thinking about doing something similarly? Now, I, I don't happen to believe we should be instructing 
uh, the world to do this, but we should be putting in place the incentives that compel entrepreneurs to to actually get on and, and start producing this equipment at, yeah. at scale yeah. and deploy yeah. and deploying it at scale. Yeah. No, um, no. So, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, there are many factors come into play here, myriad interrelated, but um, not something I, I discussed a little bit on this podcast, but, you know, how influential has the fossil fuel industry been in terms of delaying this transition to renewable energy and not, you know, uh, the awareness about uh, the, the actual consequences, but just generally, do we get a sense? Do you have a sense of of, of how that operates, and is that changing? Well, um, we follow obviously the oil and gas sector very closely, and the coal sector, who's been quiet in recent years, but the oil and gas sector is still very vocal. Um, the world can't continue without us. Uh, all of the world's energy needs is met by fossil fuels. That will never change. The pace of change is, is, will never be disruptive. I think these are their, their, their messages. Or, or they'll say, oh, by the way, um, we'll continue to do what we do uh, because we can offset somehow the emissions from our products through, through carbon capture and storage or nature-based solutions. I think all of those are, are disingenuous. They're trying to mislead policymakers. And, sure. Uh, and investors um and um uh but given given the position where they're in what what else would they do i mean if we if we sort of stand back and think about what they're trying to do what what this is really about is defending a a 200 year old technology called the internal combustion engine which hasn't changed very much during that time period what they're saying is to move from a to b you need to put a liquid fuel into an engine um and there's no way around it there's no other alternatives that's not true yeah, no. There's a piece in the Independent, uh, which I think you you might have commented upon, or, or Carbon Tracker, that the, the government inviting the oil companies to help write the rule book on whether new fossil fuel drilling is green. Um, yeah, it seems like the government talks out of at least two sides of its mouth when it comes to this, these questions. Well, they're under they're under tremendous pressure, particularly from the oil and gas sector, which pays you know huge amounts of, of tax and employs people that they're, they're under pressure there and there was similarly a report that's just come out this week that looks at how the treasury which i think makes about 20 billion pounds sterling from fuel excise duty at the pump is what are they going to do when people aren't driving cars that need a, a liquid fuel in it they're going to have to think of new ways of road pricing or whatever it might be to to get the tax back to fill the hole that's going to be uh, appearing once once we move out of oil I mean, there's so much at stake. Uh, I was just reading a tweet from Bill McKibben, um, the American environmentalist, just last week, where he was pointing out that 50% of global shipping yeah. is transporting fuels <laughs> yeah. and coal. So it's all of those, LNG and, and coal and, and so on. And so one of the things that will happen um, in the clean energy transition is the world's shipping, which is, has to decarbonize as well. It is going to lose lose about half of its purpose, and and hopefully some, you know, the need for freight elsewhere and international trade will pick up some of that slack. But that's that's a tremendous effect on on a, on a very important global industry. So yeah, so yeah. the so the energy transition is is going to flow through many many parts of the sector from construction, decarbonizing construction, which I think is a very um, straightforward thing that could be done if we can change. I mean, I'm quite a fan of things like cross laminated timber 
rebuild yeah. seven, ten-story buildings instead of using cement and steel, but you still use some. They yeah. use a lot more uh, carefully prepared wood, which actually is more sustainable. You lock up carbon. If a forestry is managed properly, it's actually a very good way to decarbonize construction. Well, the, so there's the, many the, areas of the economy that can drive out yeah. carbon. What about the, the elephants in the room, China and India? Subsidies are a huge uh, driving force in the fossil fuel economy, and uh, we'd li- like to get a sense of you know, uh, w- why it's so challenging to, to deal with that. It seems to be the case that it's the poorest people often have to bear the, the heaviest burden when, when, when fuel prices go up. The equation is different, the logic is different, and also there is this question of, of the you know, unequal uh, distribution of, of where the, the carbon was emitted in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the scale of continuing ongoing uh, development of fossil fuel in China, uh, particularly, but also in India, is, is huge. Yeah, um, so... Uh, China is uh, moving to um, an, an electric-based transportation system, and they're also one of the world's biggest investors in renewable energy infrastructure, yeah. wind and solar, yeah. at, at a vast scale. Uh, but what they're also doing because of their power needs is, is where they're closing down traditional dirty coal-fired power, they're putting in this, this, this still new coal-fired power generation. What you then have to look, though, is at um, operational efficiency and utilization rates. How often are they actually turning on these coal-fired stations that they're building if uh, if the renewables are cheaper? So renewables are still getting on ahead of, of fossil fuels, but because of the sheer scale size of actually of energy demand, particularly in India and, and China, um, coal demand and coal use uh, increases. And um, so what people have pointed out is that, and this is really one of the points behind Michael Liebreich's observations, is you can build renewable energy infrastructure as, as quickly as you possibly can. But if world energy demand is going up, the, the ratios of, of, this, of the difference between fossil fuels and renewable energy use seem to be remaining the same. Um, it's only when you can build renewable energy infrastructure faster than energy demand, which is what, which is, is happening, but has to increase. The, the question um, about China, the interesting thing or the question for me about, about China is here is a hugely populous country that um, is quite conservative, but is prepared to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year in importing energy um, and being dependent on another nation or another region for its energy needs. There's no real incentive for that to remain the same in coming years because it doesn't have. Um, huge amounts of oil and gas resources of its own, so it has to import it. So what it does, it creates a, an internal incentive in China to displace imports with its own energy needs. And so one of the drives behind electrification and renewables is energy independence and energy security, which is, a, which is an important concern of a, of a country of the size of China. And, and you're seeing something similar happen in India. Which is, which is one of the reasons why they've been building out a lot of uh, renewable energy infrastructure and introducing electrification of vehicles is because they're spending you know, what, 60, 70 billion dollars a year on importing oil and gas. And to a country like India, that's a vast expense, which could be replaced with their own sources. So yes. Yes. this is one of the, you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I, I, I think that the clean energy revolution, one of the triggers for it is the desire by countries of that size for greater energy independence. And look at, look at what's happening now in Europe and in the United Kingdom with the gas crisis. You've got one country, Russia, holding the rest of the country 
the rest of Europe to, to ransom, essentially, playing politics, as Fatih Burrell said this week over the Ukraine, uh, where Russia is, is holding back its gas, forcing prices up and creating a major problem for manufacture and for the domestic consumers in, in, in Europe. So, you, to, so you've got um, the way of dealing with uh, the energy crisis is you, you move from a situation where you've got one or two suppliers, you know, Russia, Norway, perhaps Algeria, um, completely controlling energy prices within consumer countries, thousands of consumers. So the way you break that up is you have is to have thousands of different providers and thousands of different consumers. You create a market, and the way you do that is with is with renewable energy, where people are competing to provide energy at lower and lower costs. Um, the challenge we have today, I think, is is how quickly can we displace gas fired power uh, and switch to renewables, and how can we how can we um, take the fossils out of um, uh, heat, which is very, very important, obviously, this time of year, the amount of gas used to, to, to heat the home. And can we, can we scale up things like um, ground source heat pumps, where I think we can get some um, technology curves, learning curves for that as well, where the cost of the ground source heat pump will be lower to install and lower to operate than a gas or fossil gas fired um, heating. And, um, but we've got to do that very quickly. In the United Kingdom, I think we're experimenting. I think the government announced an experiment with about 80,000 homes looking at ground source heat pumps. Well, that's tiny. You know, we should be, we should be doing this at scale in, 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 in millions of homes, not tens of thousands of homes. Yeah. And we have to start now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we talk briefly, <laughs> I don't know whether it's possible, about subsidies? Um, fossil fuel mm. subsidies, how yeah. important they are. There, there's even controversy about how you calculate what they really are, the level of subsidies. And I know in the UK, they, they claim that there are, they believe that there are, they don't provide any significant subsidies and yet other calculations suggest they do provide significant levels of subsidies, some kind of half a trillion dollars involved in, in uh, various kinds of subsidies. Um, yeah. When you look at the figures that are quoted, they're, they're eye-poppingly large and you think, well, you know, yeah. what, what is going on here? You know, uh, how can governments make these commitments net zero and so forth? And yet day in, day out, minute by minute, paying, you know, these vast sums of, of, of well, subsidies. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, in what was it, Kazakhstan last week with the kind of the uprising we saw in its brutal suppression. Um, the trigger for that was a doubling of uh, of, uh, of energy prices. I think it was a fuel, fuel at the pump. Yes. Um, and it's very politically sensitive, as we know from the Gilets Jeunes in France, and, yes. um, and energy subsidies in the global south, where where things core, it's not just energy, it's things like you know, um, wheat and grain and bread and so on. You, you see subsidies happening there. Core, core consumer products are subsidised. Um, but so is the industry as well. Some of it is. Some of it is consumer. Society is stable, uh, but the, but it's the industry subsidies. You're absolutely right, and, and a lot of the subsidies which you're, you the fossil fuel subsidies that you appear that you find that appear in the announcements um, in the academic research is is because fossil fuels don't pay the real cost of of the damages they cause right. to society. So that's a that's an implicit subsidy. But what we're also talking about is there are. There are subsidies. I mean, here's a, here's another subsidy which is which which we'll all have to be thinking about in the next decade, which is the decommissioning costs of yes. oil and gas. You can offset these costs against a tax bill. So so um, 
that's another form of, of, of subsidy in, in, in my view, where you're not actually paying for the cleanup costs yourselves. You're, you're passing that cost on essentially to the taxpayer. We're going to see an awful lot more of that um, happening around the world. Um, let yeah. alone the other forms of subsidies, subsidies that we see that are pernicious and pervasive uh, yes. around the world in pretty much every country that produces oil and uses um, oil and gas. And uh, people have talked about this for, 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 de for decades. Um, and, and it's an absolutely number one problem that needs needs addressing. Yes, yes. And uh, the implicit uh, subsidies, I suppose, is is another question. It's another dimension in the sense that presumably all industries that sell products that aren't uh, priced according to their the impact they have on the environment and carbon emissions and so forth are in some sense subsidized as well. I mean, do you think that carbon prices would would have an impact here? Carbon um, a more uh, developed uh, carbon pricing system. Uh, it is, but you know, we've got the EU emissions trading scheme where the price to pollute has been going up and the contract availability or the, the, the allowances rather uh, to allow people to pollute are, are, constri are constricted. Um, so that in theory should create an incentive for, for, for polluters to switch to clean energy sources. And it's working. The EU emissions trading scheme is working and those types of initiatives and schemes will grow globally. But the actual real price to pollute is still relatively low. Yeah. And people talk about you know, hundreds of dollars a ton of carbon to effectively eliminate some um, fossil fuel demand. Um, but politicians and policymakers have been talking about this for decades. And I, I've always felt that there are other instruments. If you, if you think about um, what we do at Carbon Tracker, um, we try to influence shareholders about um, the strategies of the fossil fuel companies. And the next battle that I see coming in the next five years is around climate competent boards. Do companies have the right transition plans in place to have the right expertise at the board level where shareholder activism, like we saw over Engine One and, and Exxon, yes. is definitely going to increase in my view. And there's going to be more interventions like we saw from that hedge fund uh, at the back end of last year to try and break up Shell. Those types of initiatives I think are going to increase in number, and many, and, and certainly a good number of them will succeed if the companies don't change fast enough. The other thing I think will happen um, if we don't get a carbon price is is countries will have to stand together about on climate around whether they actually want to continue to produce oil and gas or encouraging oil and gas licenses. So at the COP, one of the highlights for me was the launch of BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, led by Sweden and Denmark and Ireland and I think Spain and Greenland was definitely in there, and Wales was in there, and Iceland and California. Um, so we need a much bigger grouping of countries that say, look, to, to address climate, we can't do like the Americans do as soon as the COP finished, go back home and announce a whole new licensing round in the Gulf of Mexico, which was a bit of a climate uh, disaster. Um, yeah. And you've got countries like Canada saying, and Australia saying, we're committed to climate goals, but we're going to fiercely protect our, our, our oil sands business or in the case of Australia, it's coal business. And, uh, and really that kind of thing has to has to change. And, and for me, with my support for uh, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, fossilfueltreaty.org, to create that international agreement is, is very much an important part of my work in, in, coming, in, in the coming year. And also I chair an initiative um, Called the Global Registry of Fossil Fuels, where we're attempting to map 
all the world's fine production of coal and gas and look at the embedded carbon dioxide that sits in those reserves. And, and there what we're trying to do is offer governments a way of evaluating really what their, comp their competitors are doing and informing on the climate negotiations. It's, it's amazing to me, still after 25 years of climate discussions, that last year at the Glasgow COP was the first year ever that fossil fuels were mentioned in the final communique when they announced that uh, the, the phasing down of coal, instead of phasing out, they changed it to fading, phasing down the coal. Yes. Appeared. And it's because the climate treaty, it's an emissions reduction treaty. It's not a fossil fuel constraint. It doesn't try and change the supply of fossil fuels. It says to people, oh, cut emissions. And hope people figure out what that means using less fossil fuel. The first time to get that in with the launch of BOGA gives me a lot of hope. And, and as, as I said, you know, earlier in our discussions, the the lower cost of renewables um, does mean we're on a sort of a, we, we're we're on a winning trajectory. But I think you know, as we conclude our conversation, it's really can we move fast enough? Can we get there fast enough? And that's a matter of of getting the policy right and the political will. It's not about the economics. It's not about the availability of capital. And it's not even really about the technology, it's really about the policy incentives, political will, and, and making sure that people that try and block the way like the fossil fuel industry itself are moved out of the way. Yes, fascinating. Can I just briefly ask you about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty? Yeah. What, what, what is yeah. the goal? Where are you on the journey? And um, it, it, there seems to be considerable momentum, but I'd, I'd like to hear more about that, Mark. Yeah, I think any of your uh, listeners should go on to fossilfueltreaty.org and actually sign up to the newsletters and, and maybe even personally endorse it. Um, it's growing in size and influence. And my colleague, Zabora Berman Buches, um, from Canada, she, she gave a TED talk about uh, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty in October. And here we are just a couple of months on. And it's already secured over one, one and a quarter million views, which I find astonishing uh, about any idea or presentation. That just goes to illustrate how a popular or keen interest people have had in a new international agreement to, it is similar to, to giving up fossil fuels, that, that um, rather giving up nuclear weapons, and they're similarly looking at fossil fuels. So, so there's a lot of momentum behind it. There's now many, many employees all over the world working on this, and there's a lot of philanthropic backing. So it's about changing the narrative and, and reminding people that uh, if we're serious about dealing with climate change, we, we can't face the future by doubling the use of fossil fuels. And in a carbon budget, how much time have we got left before we go through one and a half degrees and two degrees? We go through two the conditions for one and a half degrees in about eight years time. And we go through the emissions that create the conditions for two degrees. We, do, we go through that in in, in, in just under two decades. So, I mean, and we've not seen that for millions of years. So, you know, time is against us. And, and that really is why everybody's got to, you know, pull, pull their socks up and work you know, hard on, on getting these solutions in place. Yes. Uh, what, how will the, fo the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty work? How will that change things? So governments would have to permanently retire and cancel the, 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 the licensing rounds that go into new exploration for coal, oil and gas. That's essentially it. And the countries would say, well, why should I give it up? Uh, our production rights. Well, the only reason why you should is that all other countries should. And BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, was the first beginnings of that, with about a dozen countries saying we're going to give up our oil and gas production rights. We now have to make this global. We have to include coal. Clearly, coal has to go first. Um, and uh, 
it, it, uh, it needs, it's a political initiative as much as anything that requires broad civil society support. Fantastic. Great vision. Wonderful. Um, this is, I guess, a, a major project for you going forward. What else is on the agenda, Mark? After the intense year of 2020 with COP and COVID, I'm, I'm, I'm rather hoping I'm going to get a week a week away with family somewhere with a, with a bit of warmth. Yes. Uh, that would be that's a, that's yeah. a personal priority for yeah. me. But so the other priority is um, evaluating the, the plans of all of the major fossil fuel companies, particularly the oil and gas sector. This is my team. And looking at whether these uh, production plans are aligned with with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement to, to well below two degrees to one and a half degrees, and then informing and working with shareholders where it's clear that those plans are not uh, aligned, uh, and then seeing investors mobilised to make sure that the right strategies and management are in place at companies like Exxon and Shell and BP and so on to to get us to where we need to be on climate, and and, and then change the political narrative around fossil fuel production. These you know, probably if you met me 10 years ago and asked me what my priorities are, I would have said exactly the same thing, but they remain my priority for 2022. That's a great vision and a very full agenda, Mark. And uh, <laughs> thank I you wish you the time. very best with all of that. And thank you so much for your time today. Well, and and, and appreciate the work you're doing. And anyone can sign on to CarbonTracker.org for the newsletters. And if you follow Twitter or use Twitter, I tweet pretty regularly. And my Twitter handle is at Campanali Mark, my surname, then my first name, Campanali Mark. And I'm very happy to tweet back other people's tweets. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for your patience today with all our technical and other issues. Young Platform is one of my trusted friends, and it is an organization that makes beautiful, soul-oriented, psychological online video and audio programs for the general public. So I'm happy to recommend their wide range of programs that deal with how to live a more fulfilling life and how to deal with the challenges of life from a soul perspective. There is also a free summit on Embody Your Creative Spirit coming up. Please check them out on youngplatform.com. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes or any other podcast platform to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.